I'd like to begin by reading a little section from chapter 20 of the text of A Course in Miracles. The title of the chapter is The Vision of Holiness. And the title of the opening section is Holy Week. Let us not spend this Holy Week brooding on the crucifixion of God's Son, but in happy celebration of His release. For Easter is the sign of peace, not pain. A slain Christ has no meaning, but a risen Christ becomes the symbol of the Son of God's forgiveness on himself. The sign he looks upon himself is healed and whole. This this week begins with palms and ends with lilies. The white and holy sign, the Son of God, is innocent. Let no dark sign of crucifixion intervene between the journey and its purpose, between the acceptance of the truth and its expression. This week we celebrate life, not death, and we honor the perfect purity of the Son of God and not his sins. Offer your brother the gift of lilies, not the crown of thorns. The gift of love, not the gift of fear. You stand beside your brother, thorns in one hand and lilies in the other, uncertain which to give. Join now with me and throw away the thorns, offering the lilies to replace them. This Easter, I would have the gift of your forgiveness offered by you to me and returned by me to you. We cannot be united in crucifixion and in death, nor can the resurrection be complete till your forgiveness rests on Christ along with mine. A week is short, and yet this holy week is the symbol of the whole journey the Son of God has undertaken. He started with the sign of victory, the promise of the resurrection already given him. Let him not wander into the temptation of crucifixion and delay him there. Help him to go in peace beyond it, with the light of his own innocence lighting his way to his redemption and release. Hold him not back with thorns and nails when his redemption is so near, but let the whiteness of your shining gift of lilies Speed him on his way to resurrection. If you see glimpses of the face of Christ behind the veil, looking between the snow-white petals of the lilies you have received and given as your gift, you will behold your brother's face and recognize it. I was a stranger, and you took me in, not knowing who I was, Yet for your gift of lilies will you know. In your forgiveness of this stranger, alien to you, and yet your ancient friend, lies his release and your redemption with him.
The time of Easter is a time of joy and not of mourning. Look on your risen friend and celebrate his holiness along with me. For Easter is the time of your salvation along with mine. This passage is so touching when you realize that it is written by Jesus and he is saying that he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without you. That he waits for you and he waits to bring your brother and your sister with you. And all that's needed, he says, is simply that we forgive each other, that we live in happiness and in peace, and then we will enter the realm of peace and the realm of love. And this is done so simply. We make it quite difficult, but the way is really very straightforward and easy to understand. Even though we are in a habit of doing everything upside down. We are in the habit of looking for results before we make the effort. We're in the habit of seeing our way through before we start. And all the lovely spiritual teachings who have, that, that have come to this earth have said, don't worry about the results. Don't worry about the outcome. Don't worry about even your faith. Don't worry about even your degree of preparation. Simply begin, my child says all the Holy Scriptures. Just begin. Just rest and be at peace. Dwell in this instant in peace with your brother. Do not spend time condemning what you just thought or what you have done or what you have done with your entire life. But instead, rest and be happy now. Because the kingdom of heaven is a state of rest and happiness. And to rest and be happy is to enter it. And nothing more than that is needed. So what I wanted to do this morning was, since we have 12 helium balloons here, you can see how organized this all is. We have 12 things, 12 little essentials. Now, I don't know if we're going to get through all of these. <laughs> we're going to get you out in time for your Easter 12 o'clock lunch, so don't worry about that. But let's take some of the things, some of the fly paper that we, we keep our feet stuck in. I'll give you a preview of coming attractions. We'll talk about ascending over illness, anger, Jealousy, guilt, idle thoughts, nagging thoughts, questioning of our faith, testing of our faith. Yes, even parents. <laughs> and children. And unhappy chance encounters. <laughs> and finally, a sense of hurry which I already have after having read. <laughs> <laughs> so let me say, 
<laughs> that we will not have a sense of hurry, and we'll just take whichever ones of these <laughs> we get to. I'll give you, as a matter of fact, the the close of the talk first. <laughs> now, you've all heard of the golden rule. But in Santa Fe, of course, we must have a silver rule. Isn't that right? You know, we don't wear that gaudy gold stuff, you know, here in Santa Fe. We, we, we wear the, the humble pieces of turquoise. <laughs> surrounded by silver. So this is the silver rule. Pause in peace, then act with assurance. Pause in peace, then act with assurance. So a rule gives us something to do when a particular situation arises. So whenever there is a hitch in our day, whenever there's a loss of happiness, a depression, a grievance, whatever it may be, what is it that we need to do? We remember the silver rule, pause in peace. <laughs> and then act with assurance. You can see this is a very old rule that we all know. <laughs> So what we do is we, we simply notice what our thoughts are, what our, our mood is, what's going on in our life, what new thing the world has thrown up before us. We simply notice that and rest in peace. And this is the, this is the overall tone of our life, just noticing and resting in peace. Just noticing and being happy. Just noticing and let. Such a lovely word. Madison Avenue has not gotten hold of that word yet. The word let. It's, got, it's gotten a hold of uh, lasting. Right? Uh, the deodorant works overtime. It lasts so long, you see. <clears throat> It's gotten hold of the word brightness so that those lovely words that indicate pure reality, lasting happiness, lasting peace have almost no meaning now. But not the word let. So lovely. Just let. Let the world go on its crazy way. Let your relationships be whatever they are. Let your house be arranged as it's arranged. <laughs> and remain in peace. But then there's this hitch. Something happens. We lose our peace. And so... I've devised this little thing called the silver rule, which is a summary of what we've been talking about for the last four or five Sundays. Pause in peace and then act with assurance. So please remember that as we, we go through these things and I'll, I'll show you how these can be applied to, to different areas.
Because all we're doing is that we are learning together how to apply this simple truth to various situations. And each one of us in this room does this a little better in one area than the rest of us. And that's why we can learn so much from each other. Because we each have one or two areas of sanity where we actually realize it's... <laughs> we actually realize it's okay to be kind. It's okay to be happy when you are backpacking. Think how many people would not see that as a possibility. When you are singing, how many people would not find that possible? When you are reading your book of poetry or whatever it may be, how many people would find that a struggle? When you are teaching your children at school, how fearful is the subject of children? When you are dealing with, with some elderly person, maybe close to death, how many people would not find that a possibility? And on and on. We each have our, our area of sanity. This peace that we feel because of this, this lovely pet, this cat, this dog, whatever it may be, it's been with us so long. How many people would not find that a possibility? How fearful is the subject of dogs in Santa Fe? <laughs> See? But someone in this group has realized that they can even jog and not be afraid of dogs. <laughs> this isn't forced, it's just a happy realization. They turn, they look at the dogs, and the dogs come running at them, you see. And they see through this exterior. They realize that they don't have to club the dog or mace the dog or anything like that, you see. It's perfectly all right, you understand, to club the dog or mace the dog if you don't see this. I'm just saying that we each have our area of sanity. A place where we realize we can actually rely on kindness. But to try to force this in some area before we realized it is total hypocrisy and completely meaningless and gets us nowhere. Just puts us in a state of tension. So let's take illness. Course in Miracles teaches that everyone who's come to this earth has an ego. An ego might be defined as the desire to come to this earth <laughs> and be separate and and uh, have little areas of specialness. It is not possible to partake of this world and not get sick in some form. Now, it is possible to define sickness so carefully that it doesn't pertain to us. But if you just look at sickness as the distress of the body, then we all are sick to the degree that we get caught up in this world. And the body, this symbol of our separateness, the symbol of our private thoughts, the symbol of our being cut off from other people, cut off from God, trapped in a dying, decaying cage, that very unhappy symbol is seen as a body. And so when we see someone else as just a body, that's all we're seeing, just 
their symbol of their loneliness, their separateness. And this is why we can feel so sad, so unexpectedly. But it is good to understand that the body was made, so to speak, as this symbol. And so now we look at it as just this sad little friend. We're now looking at our body as, as this sad little friend that's always getting in trouble. You just look at your body that way. Because we all have in our life sad little friends who are always getting in trouble. <laughs> and our body is actually in that category. What do you do when your friend gets in trouble? Well, you help them out. You don't chastise them and ask them why are they always having one melodrama after another in their relationships. You just listen to them and sympathize with uh, the latest rift that's taking place between them and someone else, you see. And the same thing is true of our body. It gets sick or it gets depressed or it gets the flu or it gets old or it gets what we think is unattractive or whatever, whatever it may be. Just this sad little friend getting in trouble again. And we do whatever it is we need to do to make it happy. We don't have to put huge amounts of significance on what its aches and pains are. There was a, a woman who moved to Santa Fe and she was in her bed one evening and she was asleep and a black widow spider came and lit on her forehead. And in her sleep, coming out of her sleep, she slapped it in not knowing what it was and threw it over to the side. And about an hour later, she felt a stinging. She didn't turn on the light. She, she went in the bathroom and did something and so forth. Then the next morning, she looked at what it was that she had thrown on the floor and asked a friend what that was. And they said, oh, it was a, it's a black widow spider. She felt a little funny, but she wasn't sick or anything. So she went to her minister. I don't know who the minister was. I wasn't told who the minister was, but I suspect who it was. I know someone in this town that has this sort of wonderful humor and insight. She and her friend said, her friend said to her, we must go to the minister and we must find out what this means. What does this mean? <laughs> and they had a, a meeting. They set up a meeting with the minister. They said, what does this mean? Just moved to Santa Fe. Black widow spider comes down, bites her in the forehead, <clears throat> right in the place of the third eye. <clears throat> what does that mean? The minister says, it means she was bitten by a black widow spider. <laughs> and that's all it means. So we don't have to put big significance on whatever it is. Why do I have this aching back? Why do I get headaches more than my friends? It doesn't mean anything. The distress 
this pain of pain is actually greater than the original pain itself. Thinking that we've done something wrong, that, uh, that this is an indication of our unworthiness, of our fallibility, of, the, uh, of, our, of our shabby and inadequate effort. So look at your illnesses, no matter what they be, as innocent. Because God isn't even interested in them. He loves you so much. He doesn't get preoccupied with whatever this thing is that's going on. He sees the soft light that he put in your heart when he made you. And this is what he is interested in. Should we be interested in something less Let's talk about anger. We're ascending. We're going to have little ascensions over these things. Little ascension over illnesses. It's okay. Just lose interest in the illness. It's okay. Turn to the peace of God. Do whatever it is you need to do to feel better. If you want to use mental imagery, use mental imagery. If you want to use an aspirin, use an aspirin. But allow yourself to turn back to the peace of God. Don't take this as some sign, some great sign of failing. It has no significance. Anger. Is it possible to ascend over anger? To rise above it? It's quite simple to do that if we realize that we are never angry about what is going on. That's not what we're angry about. This is quite easy to see if you will take just a moment to look at your thoughts when you become angry. Now you must turn and look at them in detail without any analysis whatsoever. Just see what is in your mind at that time. And you will discover that you in fact are not angry at what was just said or what just happened. You will find that the anger came with a thought so you may have used the particular thing as an opportunity or your mind or your ego may have used it as an opportunity to introduce this thought but it's the thought that made you angry and not what the person said or what just happened. And if you look even closer you will find that at the base of this thought and this is not difficult to see at the base of this thought is a is a weariness with this world. It is a sudden recognition of how sad this world can be and how hopeless our state seems to be. Notice the little tinge of hopelessness that's in this thought. For just a second, possibly you saw how alone you are in this world. How hopeless all the factors that are in play make you feel. Just for a second, this, this instant of, of weariness, of desperation even. And along with it, the example. 
that floods into your mind of how this situation is just like so many others. So it isn't even our interpretation of what has taken place that makes us angry. So it isn't the event and it isn't even the interpretation because our interpretation will vary according to our mood. We've all seen that. The same thing can happen when we're in one mood. It won't make us angry. In another mood, it infuriates us. In another mood, it makes us laugh. In another mood, we don't even pay attention to it. So it isn't the event and it isn't the interpretation that makes us angry. It is this thought. Are we to fight the thought? The wonderful thing about the ease in which we go to heaven, all of us, is that all that's required is for us to notice the thought. And seeing its craziness, it evaporates like mist before the sun. It just vanishes. There is nothing more important to your happiness and your peace than simply noticing, which is another way of saying letting. So we're not fleeing it. We're not fighting it. We're not doing battle with ourselves. We're not trying to replace one feeling with another feeling. We just turn. We say, oh, I'm angry. You look at the contents of your mind. You will see this thought. It's still there. Looking at it, you, the brightness of God, will shine upon this dark little thought, little harmless thought, and shine it away, and you will feel yourself relax once again. Let's talk about jealousy. Jealousy is, of course, a concern with our position in the world. It has taken a specific form. We often think of jealousy as maybe we're jealous at someone at the office who seems to be uh, promoted more rapidly than we are. Or we're jealous of uh, someone who has our loved one's attention. But whenever we have anything any negative thing in our experience, we can be sure that it is planted in numerous little crevices of our life. And, and we don't necessarily have to work on the big jealousy that we feel towards this person. That sometimes is a very hopeless situation. Just look for how you are making the same mistake in other areas of your life. Once again... There's nothing to do about the mistake except to notice it. Because if you notice that it's a mistake, you won't make it. As long as you think it's a sin, you're going to hold on to it. Because this, this is some indication of your basic nature. So you just notice it. So how does jealousy take form beside these big dramatic things that come up in our lives? Well, it takes place in... Uh, where we are seated. There's all this seating thing so that you can you can you can pay and, and, and get a better seat. If you have the money, you're seated in one place rather than another place. If you know the maitre d, you're seated at the table that's not by the swinging kitchen door. It goes like this, do you see? 
That's our place in the world. So we buy a car to give us a place in the world. We look at our car and we have a, a certain anxious sense of pride in this. Because this indicates our place in the world. Or we wear certain clothes and it indicates our place in the world. And there's a certain unhappiness with this because we notice the people who are not in that place and we do love them. And so there's this tinge of sadness to our relation that our place is better than our brother or sister. Is the, uh, is the answer to go out and buy a troca? Or an old car? Or, uh, or to walk on foot? Or to ride a bicycle? No, that's not the answer. The answer is never to, to uh, change our behavior. It's simply to notice this, to notice what the ego is making of our car, what the ego is making of where we're sitting, what the ego is making of what restaurants we appear to be able to go to or we'll allow ourselves to go to. And in noticing it, we ascend above this pettiness. It is discounted because it's so unhappy and it's so unnecessary. Let's talk about guilt. Once again, guilt, like anger, like jealousy, even like illness, springs for, from this deep loneliness that we feel for God. If you just simply look at it, you will see that that's all that's going on. Guilt is merely the cherishing of an attack. We think that we have somehow made ourselves into something else that God didn't create. We are the joy of God. We are God's meaning. We are God's brightness. The Course in Miracles says we are even God's home, His holy home. That's why the Father ran out to greet the prodigal son. That's why He put rings on His finger, prepared the best food in the house. We are God's joy. And it makes God so happy when we're happy. And it does not make God happy when we are guilty. And when we feel guilty. And when we beat up on ourselves. In the name of some form of humility. This is what's required of us. All that's required of us is to be the image and likeness of God because that's the way he made us. To be happy and free and effortless. So nothing has to be analyzed. Never do we need to spend one second asking, us, asking ourselves why have we been thinking the thought we've just been thinking? Or why did we do that? Or why did we say that thing in that conversation? Or I wonder if I hurt so-and-so's feelings. Where 
is the image and likeness of God in that? Where is the joy and the peace in that? So we can very gently ascend over guilt. Let's take idle thoughts. A good time to notice the operation of the ego mind because the ego, of course, has an imaginary mind as well as it has imaginary emotions and everything else. So this little shabby identity that we carry around with, this thing that we think we are, that God had no part in making, has all these imaginary feelings and even has an imaginary mind that thinks imaginary thoughts. So we say, I am unworthy of love. I've made such a mess of my life or I haven't gotten to the place I want to get to. I'm not doing this right. Somehow I'm not doing it right. And so this whole thing is, is, is sort of composes an identity, something that we actually think we are. It has nothing to do with the truth, something we've made up, qualities that we've cherished. Possibly we're very proud of our anger and we tell these stories of, uh, of these wonderful fits of anger that we've had, you see or of our great depressions. And this goes up to make an identity. We actually think this is the thing we are. A self-image, but not a self. Well, this self-image has a mind, a pretend mind. It's not a real mind. But if we are this picture that we've painted our, of ourselves, then, of course, we must think in a certain way. And so it's as if our mind has sort of divided off those little piece of itself and it actually thinks the way our shabby self-image ought to think. Just like an imaginary playmate as a child will have a particular personality. Gail's my little boy is three now and he, he now has a little imaginary playmate. This, this playmate has a distinct personality. And I know you've all seen this. Maybe you can even remember your own imaginary playmate. It acts in a particular way. There's a theme to it. Even though what it does surprises you, it surprises you because it's so different, this imaginary playmate. But who gave it its mind? Who gave it its reactions? Of course, we as children gave it those reactions and those thoughts, put those words in its mouth. And so our little imaginary identity, our sad little friend that's always getting in trouble, has this mind. Now, you can watch it in the morning. This is a good time when you wake up. You first wake up in the morning. Maybe the alarm hasn't gone off or you haven't yet gotten up. Maybe you're making your attempts to have a gentle conversation with God. But notice what your sad little friend is doing. It is going from problem to problem like a bee goes from plant to plant. Just notice this. There's nothing to do about it. You don't have to try to shut it off. Or it's going from trash can to crash, trash can like a stray dog. You see. So it, it, it'll bring up something that needs to be done. Something that needs to be fixed in the house. Something that wasn't done yesterday. 
something exciting that maybe you can get involved in. Just notice it. And what you're doing, because you want to spend this time in joy, this is the time of your awakening, this is in fact an Easter. Our awakenings in the morning are little Easter's. Times of renewal. Like the time of, of this part of the year in which we clean our house and we plant little things in the ground. Maybe we get our car washed. You see? It's great renewal that goes on everywhere. The morning time is a time like that. And we know it. And we know it can be used so effortlessly and so peacefully. And then there's a little ego over there going from problem to problem. Now all we have to do is simply notice that what it's doing is it is seeing if it can attract our attention away from the peace of God. And if you see that that's all it's doing, you'll merely laugh and let it go ahead and go from plant to plant. It doesn't matter. It'll try this problem and then that problem and this future disaster and this old embarrassment and this whatever it can, you know. Just a, it's, it's like it's keeping one eye on you and it's just going on see. <laughs> and every once in a while without your noticing it, you'll, you'll get caught up. Ah, oh, that's a genuine problem. <laughs> and you might spend a minute or two thinking about this. Oh, this indeed needs to be taken care of, see. But when you notice that your mind has gotten caught up with it, you don't have to say, oh, I'm misusing my time. That's the ego also. All you do is notice it and return to the peace of God. So an idle thought, this little bee that goes from flower to flower, an idle thought cannot destroy your happiness. And this is so important because once we have spent several minutes pursuing an unhappy line of thought, a train of thought, and then we wake up and realize what an absolutely silly use of our mind this is, we think we have actually destroyed the peace of God. We've actually destroyed our happiness. We've actually destroyed our opportunity to begin this day aright. No. That cannot even be touched. The peace of God and your happiness is dependent upon your relationship with God. That cannot be touched. A shadow cannot even be cast over it. God loves you so deeply and so fully that nothing can shake that. And there's nothing to do about it except notice what other thing our mind has turned to. It has merely turned to something that is not loving, that is not peaceful. Let's talk just a moment about nagging thoughts. Now this seems to be a little different than idle thoughts, this sort of going from trash can to trash can. Thing, you know. This seems to be a big garbage can that's planted right in the center of our life. Won't go away. It may be in some sense temporary, but it's something that our mind returns to quite often. We think it's a real problem. So this was one of the flowers that the little bee went to that we really did 
get engrossed in. We picked this one up. We owned it. We said, ah, you're right. This is my problem. And now we've nurtured it and and put the water and the fertilizer on it. It's grown into a a great big uh, sunflower or something like that. And we can't see anything else because we're just looking at it, you see. Someone owes us money. My brother-in-law owes me money, you see. I love my sister so much. Why did she marry that guy? (laughs) And he just received a big bonus. Did he pay me the money that he owes me? No, you see, and this has gone on for months, do you see? What what do we do about that? Well, probably just noticing it may not be enough. And so, in that case, we apply the silver rule. (laughs) Pause in peace and then act with assurance. You see, I'm learning and I've I've got it memorized now. Pause in peace and then act with assurance. So we go back to the peace of God and we say, what do I want to do about this? In the peace of God, we ask that question. What is it that will make me peaceful? What will bring peace? And when you take your problem into the peace of God, do not put any restraints on the answer. Do not go in there with limited options. If the peace of God is is as important to you as answering the front door or scratching your nose or going to the restroom with a diarrhea attack, if it's at least that important to you, then say to yourself, I am willing to do whatever I need to do to have the peace of God, to be happy. I'm willing, for example, with my brother-in-law to uh, offer him more money on the one hand, to offer him enormous sums of money. On the other hand, I'm willing to forget the whole thing. I'm willing to write him a little note and tell him that I love him so much that I've decided that I would very much like to just give this to him as a gift You see, anything is a possibility. And so, But you don't decide on something beforehand. You simply go into the peace of God. You say, I would like to do that which will allow me to remain happy and peaceful. What is it that I can do? And out of this peace will come something very simple, which may be to call him and just bring it up and say, well, I was playing a few bills and uh, needed, uh, needed a little money. I just want to find out if there's any possibility that uh, you could pay that money, you see. Maybe you'd like to make two or three calls like that. Then the situation, now you may now you may begin to see that making those phone calls is disturbing your peace. And so now in your consideration, it may come to you to forget to forget it. It is not more spiritual to forget it. It's not more spiritual to make the other person be responsible. It is more spiritual to do the thing that gives you peace this instant. Whatever gives you peace this instant is the spiritual thing to do. And that will vary from day to day, from situation to situation. It can very well vary. So what you may do in one day is not what you'll do the next. And so 
No grand rule has to be made of this except that the peace of God has become the most important thing in your life. peace of God is the most important thing in your life. That is the only thing there is to learn. That is another word that has become almost meaningless. Important. But it still has enough meaning that we can use it. The peace of God is important. How important is the peace of God? How important is it for me to wake to kindness and love and gentleness? How important is it for me to let what is unimportant be unimportant? How important is it for me to let go of all the pettiness, and all the concerns and all the little errands and everything else? Not so I can sit in the chair but so I can have God's peace as I run the errands. If you take nothing else from this lovely Easter day and this talk that we've had together this morning, if you take nothing else than that one thought that the peace of God is important to you, that it is what is behind the anger and the jealousy and the nagging thoughts and the idle thoughts and the illnesses. If you can just say to yourself one moment during the day, if you can pause during one little moment of stress, because stress always indicates a a, a preoccupation with the future. Notice the next time that any problem arises any distress arises that there is this sense of hurry or stress that underlies it. Something needs to be done. Something better be done. It may be almost unconscious, but notice that whenever you don't have a sense of relaxation, when you can't sigh and say, I have not a care in the world, if you can't do that, then notice this, this sense of stress. And the stress means something's got to be done. That means that something's more important than the peace of God. I've got to get there on time. This dish that I'm fixing has to turn out. It doesn't have to turn out. It probably won't turn out. Let's take one more. Testing our faith. Now this is a favorite way of torturing ourselves once we start on a spiritual path. Now we think we've learned something and we're going to test it, you see. So even though we were unendowed in the upper region of our body, we're going to get in the hot tub anyway. <laughs> I say. 
Now, our body is a great source of embarrassment to us, but this is not spiritual. It shouldn't be, so we're going to make ourselves sit in the hot tub. <laughs> Although this guy has a patch over his eye, he's drooling slightly, and there's a big scar that runs from his temple to his chin, and there's a, a suspicious bulge in his pocket. He's a hitchhiker. We've got to pick him up. It's spiritual to pick him up. It's unspiritual to not pick him up. You see. We must test our love. Do we really love all of God's children? Therefore, we must come to a screeching halt. Take this person into the car. You see how silly that is? I can remember how many times I got myself in trouble thinking that I had to climb some mountain or some cliff or something uh, because I was so afraid to do so. I mean, that I can remember having done that so many times as a boy and gotten myself in really big trouble doing that. My mom who sits back there can remember a time that my brother and I climbed up a waterfall. And why, how we survived that, I don't know. But I can remember the only thing that spurred me on was the fact that I was afraid to go on. And somehow, you know, I had to do battle with my fear. Or you're very jealous of this person. You've got to see them because you are jealous. That's so ridiculous. The peace of God is what's important to you. Not some shallow, hollow victory over nothing. Fear is nothing. Jealousy is nothing. We don't have to do battle with it. If we do battle with it, we simply have gotten engrossed in this garbage can. That's all that's happened. No real progress is made. I just want to say one word about parents. Parents, as so many scriptures have said, are a symbol for our relationship with God. We cannot make progress until we heal our relationship with our parents. This does not mean that we have to heal it on an ego level. But we have to heal it deep in our heart. And it makes no difference whether your mom or dad are dead or unknown to you. Maybe you have a parent who's unknown to you. are very much present, but you have these constant clashes on ego level. This is a weight that's wrapped around your waist that you are dragging with you, and you need not drag it. It doesn't matter how long your parent may have been dead. It matters not how many clashes, how many impossible situations you've gotten yourself into. You must begin loving your mother and your father or you cannot love God. Because in this world, everything is a shadow. Everything is a symbol. Everything simply represents a truth. And our relationship with our parents represent our trust of authority. And if we don't love what is the symbol 
of authority, the symbol of our nurturing, the symbol of our upbringing, the symbol of our protection, the symbol on this earth of our origin, that which gave us life, brought us into being. If we do not see that in innocence, if we can't say, my mom deserted me, but she did the best she could. She was very young. She did the best she could. I, I haven't seen her. I don't even know what she looks like. She did the best she could. You will have some image of your mom or your dad, even if you've never seen them in your mind. That is all you need to work with. Turn that into a fountain of splendor. That's all you have to do. Make that into a little garden. Reach out in love through the years, even through their death, and bless them and hug them mentally, even while all the turmoil continues, every Christmas or whenever it is, you know. <laughs> I'll close with children. This has become an extremely fearful subject at this time in the world. It's a very fearful subject, as can be told, as can be discerned by all the articles and all the books and the talk shows and the experts all over the world. And the basic fear is we're going to damage our child. We're not going to do it right and they're going to be eternally damaged. The only thing that will hurt your child, it will not permanently damage them, but the only thing that will hurt them is the anxiety that you're going to hurt them. It's just the anxiety that will hurt them. Not, not what you do, not whether you give them a swat every once in a while or don't give them a swat. Whether you make them eat their beans or don't make them eat their beans, you see? It doesn't. That doesn't matter. It matters only that you understand that even as you look to your parents as the soil from which you grew, your child looks to you as the soil from which you grow. Your child up to adolescence is more dependent on the truth in you than they are on the truth in them. More responsive to the truth in you. So you simply put in this soil from which your child springs the nutrients that you wish them to have. And there are only the nutrients of peace and love and certainty. And so what your child wants more than anything else is just safety and peace. And sometimes a child will feel much safer if there are some limits, if they know I can do this, but I'm not to do that. You can see that. Anybody can see that a child can feel safer if there are sometimes some limits. We can see that sometimes children become extremely confused if we say, well, they can just do anything that they want to do. All you have to do is look at a child 
that's in a situation like that and see that they can, they're very distressed and very confused. And as soon as someone steps in, maybe uh, a new mother comes into the relationship or a new father or, or something, or maybe it's just someone who works in the yard and spending a lot of time, and that person says, no, I don't want you to work with the shears. You can work with the rake, but not with the shears. And suddenly, the child falls in love with the, with the gardener, you see. <laughs> and no one, everybody tries to understand what's going on. Well, what's going on is that there's, there's a sense of safety. And there's no ambivalence there. So all we need to do is once again pause in peace, then act with assurance. That's all we need to do because it is the sense of peace and certainty in our heart that nourishes the sense of peace and certainty in our child. It's the love we feel that calls to the love in our child. So the kind of parent that we wish to be is as simple as flipping the knob on the TV. Now, if you just flip the knob on the TV, you will run across programs that obviously appeal directly to the ego. They appeal to vengeance and anger and greed. That doesn't mean you shouldn't watch them. <coughs> but obviously, we can see what it's appealing to. It's, there's no question about what it's appealing to. You can see certain programs appeal straight to the ego. We can see other programs appeal to gentleness and love and happiness. It's so clear which ones. This doesn't mean, please don't leave here thinking that you should now stop watching certain TV programs. I'm just using this as an analogy. Watch whatever TV programs you want to watch. Just notice whether you like watching them. <laughs> if you don't like watching them, it's all right to watch another kind or not watch any at all, whatever you want to do. So as a parent, that's all we are. We're just this TV program that surrounds our child. That's what we are. We are the big TV program in the sky. <laughs> and we surround our child and we are his life. Notice that the child looks at you and you are central to everything he does and everything he thinks. So what do you wish to do? Simply appeal to his real mind. Not with words, but with love. So you're simply calling out in gentleness and peace. And let yourself do whatever you do in gentleness and peace. It isn't what you do that will hurt the child, and nothing that you do will permanently damage the child. That's nonsense. But you can help your child. You can make them happy by being happy. When you're happy, it appeals to them. When you're anxious, no matter what you're doing, when you feel guilty, no matter what you're doing, you're calling out to the guilt. You're simply teaching the guilt. There's nothing to do about that except to notice it. Noticing it, you'll see it doesn't make you happy. And seeing it doesn't make you happy, it will fall away of its own self. We didn't get through all 12. But let me see if I can summarize what we've been talking about. This is Easter. 
This is the time of new beginnings. This is the time in which we remember once again what we are and where we're going. This is a time of starting over. This is a time of remembering the present. This is a time to recall that Jesus Christ or whatever words you wish to call your Savior, your guardian, your angel, your friend with a capital F walks beside you. I know that many of you don't believe that. It isn't necessary for you to believe it first. There is someone who walks beside you. There is someone who has always been beside you. There is someone who has very gently whispered in your ear ever since you were born. There has been a gentle pleading for your happiness that has taken place in your mind and your heart every minute of the day and night for as long as you've lived. That's your friend who simply says, this isn't making you happy, but this will make you happy. You can do so much for yourself. You can make your new beginning so significant if in your pausing for peace you will assume what I am telling you that there is someone who is beside you at this very instant ask that someone for help just say I don't know how to handle this just say please help me and assume that the help is given. Fall back in the arms of his strength and his love. He will make himself known to you. What I'm telling you is far more real than the sound of my voice 